I'm Lexi and this is Hannah and we're Wild About Conservation. This is the podcast where we explore the world of conservation through discussions with our very knowledgeable guests and this season's focus is on all things ocean. In this episode we chat to Melissa Constellio Ray, a researcher based at the University of Highlands and Islands in Thurso, Scotland. Our chat today focuses on seabirds, the differences between these ocean-dwelling animals and the birds that you see in your garden. Melissa's research focuses on refining monitoring methods for seabirds. We talk about her fieldwork, marine renewables and animal behaviour. We have learned a lot chatting to Melissa today and appreciated the chance to learn more about these wonderful animals. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. Please remember to leave us a review, get in touch on Twitter and if you'd like to support us as creators, we do actually have a Patreon. You can check out all of the links in the show notes on our website. So enjoy! Hi, thank you for chatting to us today. So can you firstly introduce yourself to our listeners, who you are, what you do, and your key interest in conservation? Hi, Hannah. Thank you very much to both of you for having me on. So I'm Melissa Costaleo Larray. I'll say the whole thing just because some people trip over my last name. <laughs> and I'm currently a PhD researcher, and I'm based at the Environmental Research Institute, and that's in Thurso, and that's part of the University of Highlands and Islands. So my current work, I actually investigate the potential biases of traditional survey methods, and that's seabird survey methods. And in particular, I look at land-based vantage point surveys. So maybe just to tell you what land-based vantage point surveys are. So they're traditional land-based surveys carried out by an observer. And so the observer scans a survey area with either binoculars or a spotting scope, which is just a little telescope for bird spotting. And they're looking for seabirds and they pinpoint the, how many there are and where they are. And then these are used often to collect data for baseline assessments. So for environmental impact assessments. So for example, if we want to build something in the water, so if we want to put marine renewables in there, we have to carry out surveys to understand what, what animals use those environments. So I'm looking at improving these land-based survey methods. Thank you so much for such a good introduction. But before we get to know you a little bit better and we get to go into all of your experiences, we do have a short game that we like to play with our guests. Mm -hmm. So it's a really fun round of some quick fire questions just to keep you on your toes and it lets us get to know you a little bit better. So firstly, if you could be any animal, what would it be? Oh, that's a hard one. And one that I actually think about quite often, I think as, a, as a, somebody that's into wildlife, you will often wonder what bird, what, not bird, sorry, well, for me, bird, uh, what animal would you be? I think I'd have to be a bird, maybe a guillemot. So these are cliff nesting seabirds that ne nest very high up and they have one egg and they're very, very sweet and do lots of diving and playing around in the water. I don't know, very very cute and playful so yeah I would say a guillemot comma guillemot <laughs> I love that answer I am going to google guillemots when I get off this call so that I can see what they look like too let me see if you could fly breathe underwater or hibernate which would it be I would definitely say breathe underwater I've done quite a bit of diving I've been lucky to do some diving and I just love the marine environment so I definitely love to breathe underwater and be able to see all the all the cool things that are swimming around in our oceans. <laughs> 
That's a curveball. I really thought you were going to say fly after the bird. I know, it's hard. It's hard. I thought that too. under <laughs> <laughs> the water though, so I get to see them when they dive down. <laughs> Some of them. Absolutely. And what is something that you love that has nothing to do with conservation? In that, do you mean so wildlife related or? Yeah. Yeah. Um, nothing to do with conservation. That's a tough one. Um, I'd actually say I'm, I'm currently starting to try and learn bird song, so not not just seabirds, but just what you'll hear in your outside in your garden, what you're likely to come across when you're going for a walk through the woods. What are those birds that are chirping away? So I'm currently trying to get my ear in and listen to lots of videos, uh, and I'm using YouTube primarily just to try and learn those birds and to try and identify them without seeing them. So that's very hard, and I'm trying my that best. Is- <laughs> so tough I did a couple of bird walks at uni with a professor pointing out the birds and the songs mm-hmm. and repeating the noises and I just don't have the ear for it I'm not very musically inclined <laughs> so I just couldn't get there I am my hat is off to you I'm trying my best I don't, I'm not going to say I'm an expert but I'm starting to learn anyway so very very amateur <laughs> yeah I think I can listen to like maybe a robin blackbird starling but they're like kind of <laughs> my my do seabirds have songs yes yeah, so they all have different calls um i've not st- i don't know if they're dis- as distinct as um as different garden birds it's definitely something you can learn i mean i was talking about oyster catchers not a seabird but like a wading bird they're very very distinct call but seabirds, I suppose it's very difficult because they're in colonies. Quite often when we see them, they're at land breeding and they're in these huge numbers. So to try and pinpoint out one species and listen to it, that would be quite difficult. <laughs> yeah, that's quite true, especially so many in the same place. Mm-hmm. Before we completely dive down with the seabirds into everything about seabirds, every episode we ask our guests how they get wild about conservation. Mm-hmm. How do you get wild? So I think. It has to, I think it always for everybody has to start somewhere. So when did you, what got you into conservation? And I would say as a child, I don't know, I spend lots and lots of time out in nature and I was very, very lucky to spend a great deal of time in nature. And it's very strange, but I've always had this fascination with water particularly. So I've always been rooting through rock pools and having a little search, obviously making sure to put the rocks back afterwards and just, just getting out there and even pond dipping and everything like that. I've just had a fascination with and it kind of just grew from there. So what is under the water has always really, really fascinated me. So then I think that's what got me into marine biology specifically. <laughs> I adore pond dipping. It's like my favorite activity i do love that. and you you get to an adult and people are like sorry there's not that much pond dipping about and i'm like there please anybody <laughs> go water, just go yeah <laughs> i went to, i often went to like a local nature reserve so it's not rspb or anything but a local nature reserve and you could go into their little office that they had and you could just request oh please can i have the pond dipping gear so they'd give you a tray and the nets and an id guide and i just love that more than anything i do miss it i need to do it again soon <laughs> there is nothing better than having that moment of curiosity when you start pond dipping and you're like I don't know what I'm gonna find but I'm gonna have a great time exactly yeah I think it's the unknown isn't it what am I gonna find and then it's also the fun of IDing it as well afterwards yeah absolutely so Mel I have a question for you you've mentioned that you've fallen in love with the ocean from when you were a child but how did you go from like deep ocean pond dipping and things like that 
to a love of seabirds? So I kind of I started off my journey, I suppose it's all kind of to do with uh, education. So I started off, I did biology at college. I had a really inspiring female teacher there. And she. Re- I was actually going to take geography at um, undergrad level. And she inspired me. I, I think my love of biology then overtook my love of geography. So then I started off doing biology at Sheffield University. And from there, I just did biology. I decided oh, I'm going to keep my options open. I'll just do biology, even though I've always had this marine love. I wasn't quite sure what to do. And I think as a child, you're quite often told just to keep those options open. So I just did biology because I really wasn't sure. I didn't want to commit too far. So then I, I went on to do a marine biology master's because it was very, very clear that marine biology was my love and always was so I needed to learn more about that marine environment so then I did a master's uh, at Bangor University and from there I did well at the end of that I did a a project and so that project was a dissertation project and that was based on seabirds and that's where it all started really <laughs> so I spent the whole of the breeding season a seabird colony and that was the first time I'd ever been to a seabird colony and it really does blow your mind it's it's no, there's nothing like it so from there and watching them grow up so the chicks well sorry first the eggs been laid and then the chicks hatching I even watch the chicks come out with the eggs so then watching them being fed by the adults I think just my love just really did <laughs> it was fixed then so and and then my love then for research then came in actually because I'm there doing carrying out the research and finding out results and just that whole process I then fell in love with so I had to I had to carry on and do more, so that's when I decided to do, to do a PhD after that. So that's where I ended up now with with my seabirds. Yeah, <laughs> I love that because it's it's funny. There's so many people I talk to that are either doing PhDs or did a master's, and like that's where it's usually you get the chance to focus on something, and suddenly you like you become slightly obsessed. And yeah, I was the same. I was like marine biology and zoology, and my mom was like you're obsessed with the sea why are you not just doing yeah, marine biology you did the same and similar yeah so then I I finally well I was already doing it a bit but then I was like okay I will, I will just focus now um rather than doing mm-hmm. everything at once as usual you mentioned obviously songbirds in our garden versus seabirds and that they do sound different but they all kind of still have potentially their same song but what is a seabird versus just a bird yeah outside (laughs) so that's that's a fantastic question because I think quite often people don't think of them as two separate things they just think of birds as birds and they don't think of the they don't distinguish what is so that is a fantastic question what what makes them different so seabirds I think the clue is slightly in the name so they're adapted to marine life and they spend the majority of their life at sea so they rely on the ocean for food for for everything apart from that one kind of time in their cycle where they they return to land and they breed so that's that's what they do and I suppose they have quite a different they've got lots of unique adaptations that help them live in the marine environment so they have webbed feet to help them swim and they have quite off quite a few of the seabed species have salt glands so to be able to get rid of that excess salt and effectively drink the ocean water now they've kind of got rid of that salt out of it they've also were uh, waterproof and they've got specialised feathers, so they've got quite a lot of feathers compared to their body. So compared to, say, the birds we find in our garden, they've got quite a few more feathers that makes them buoyant, as well as being waterproof. Yeah, so those are all the few things that they have that make them specialised to live in the marine environment, or that I can think of off the top of my head. 
those are some really, really cool features. And on that note, I wanted to know, what is your favourite seabird? Favourite seabird? So one of them I've already mentioned already. So that was the bird that I would be. Uh, so that's a common guillemot. And I'd have to, I can't commit to one, um, but I would have to say, my favourite seabirds are common guillemots and razorbills. These are the two species I actually worked on in my masters. Um, so these are cliff nesting seabirds. They're black and white, quite small. Often, some people refer to them as like looking very much like penguins. They're not related to the penguin at all because they can fly, but they are very much penguin-looking, and they they breed on these on these steep cliffs um, and have one egg and look after that egg until it yeah until the chick fledges so uh, yeah definitely i'd say you definitely need to google what they look like and also i'd, I'd encourage anyone to if you don't know what they look like also google the eggs as well because the eggs are a very very cool shape they're kind of like a pear shape and it was thought that they were this shape to stop it rolling off the ledges because they don't make any sort of nest so these eggs are very precarious they just kind of sit on them so they have them on their feet but they also very unique colours and patterns as well. So you really need to have a look at what, they, what these eggs look like. <laughs> Just thinking about kind of what you're saying about their eggs. And you mentioned that they're waterproof. Are, are all seabirds waterproof? I mean, you talk about that they breed on cliffs, but where where do they live the rest of the time? Is it just away? And so I will... So I will correct myself. Not all seabirds live on, uh, sorry, breed on on cliffs. So the guillemots and the razorbills, as I've mentioned, uh, breed on the cliffs. But then we've got lots of other different ways that seabirds nest. Um, although they might not all make nests, we still call it nesting. Um, so some dig burrows, so puffins you might know of, and Manx shearwaters, they they dig their own burrows and they have their nests in there. Sorry. So what was are all seabirds waterproof was my main question and also where do they uh, go, go where yeah. do they go when they're not nesting um <laughs> so um, so no not all seabirds are waterproof the european shag which is kind of close relative of the cormorants these are black birds um you might have seen cormorants because they do come inland so these are black birds quite tall looking um quite large um compared to when you're thinking about seabirds these actually aren't waterproof so they quite often you'll see them hanging out um, on a sunny day. So having their wing, wings wide open, just trying to dry off. Yes, because they don't have that waterproof. But seabirds, as you said, we know quite a lot of, about seabirds when they're on when they come on land to breed, because that's when they're accessible to us. So if you think about what what do they do in the whole of that rest of the time, they do go offshore. A lot less is known about seabirds within that time, but they do go offshore. And I know puffins, for example, spend a lot of time in large rafts. So they all get together in, and make this raft and they often sleep in those rafts and spend quite a lot of time like that. But quite a few seabirds even sleep on the water. So like I said, quite a, a lot less is known about them in that time, but they do just move offshore. But that isn't the case. <laughs> I know it's quite hard. You can't pigeonhole all seabirds. Some seabirds, for example, Arctic terns make that journey to the Arctic. Um, so quite a lot, quite a few seabirds are migratory as well. So they don't just move off the shore. They do move to specific and different locations. That sounds amazing, and I appreciated the pigeonhole one there. <laughs> I thought you that too. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so you've already mentioned the fact that you've been able to observe these birds and seeing some of the nests 
and seeing the babies hatch out of the eggs and how they look after each other and all of that. And it just sounds incredible. So can you pinpoint your favorite seabird moment and explain that for us? Yes, that, that is a very difficult one, but also one I've thought about because I've actually heard that it comes up. Uh, I mean, I've not had it personally, but I've heard it comes up sometimes in job interviews. So what's your, if you're looking for seabird jobs, so what's your favorite seabird moment? I think that's a really good question. Um, I would have to say my favorite seabird mo- uh, moment was, I was actually on a boat between uh, John O'Groats and Orkney. So this is in the far north of Scotland. And I was on a boat as part of actually, it was part of Orca Watch, which is run by the Sea Watch Foundation. This was back in 2019 because they weren't able to do it this year. Um, and I was on this boat. I'll tell you why we we're on the boat. But um, <laughs> yes, we were on this boat and lots of gannets. So these are large birds, um, large seabirds with about two meter wingspan white with a kind of a yellowish face and black wingtips and they're very spectacular birds just because of the pure size of them and they joined us in the wake of the boat uh, and started diving next to the boat and I've never had such a close interaction with such a large seabird and just to have them diving and foraging right next to the boat was just I couldn't I couldn't believe how close they were <laughs> but the reason we're on the boat actually in the first place was because it was part of so Orca Watch like I said is um, coordinated by the seabird watch foundation uh, and it's kind of a marine mammal recording event but it's got a particular focus on orcas uh, so it happens annually and i was just kind of taking part in that but no amazing amazing experience <laughs> yeah melissa you're certainly usually based um up in the north of scotland and it's a perfect place to go and see some unusual marine creatures visiting our shores but very lucky. i agree if if you like birds and you're in scotland some of the gannet colonies and opportunities to interact with gannets up here i've definitely had one of my like one of my best experiences on orkney just sat on a cliff and they're so close um so and then bass rock as well is a giant colony just outside of edinburgh so Mm. people listening going i want to see a gannet scotland is your place (laughs) if you're not in scotland though if you're not in scotland because i i'm not in scotland currently i'm in manchester um and actually before lockdown and everything i visited a colony not all that far from here in the grand scheme of things um it's actually at bempton cliffs and they have an incredible colony there that's the only colony i've actually been to i've not been to any of the scottish ones yet so (laughs) yeah i would definitely recommend that there's always time to visit more colonies yeah i think melissa next time i see you we need to go visit one of those colonies. <laughs> that would be fantastic. <laughs> um, I have a flip side question, actually, on what is your favourite seabird moment? What is your least favourite seabird moment? Like, has a seabird ever thrown up on you or, you know, dropped a dead fish on you? What has been your least favourite seabird moment? <laughs> Lexi is squinting her face right now. <laughs> um. Quite a lot of seabird researchers that tag and uh, tag birds and have very very close contact would have lots of those fantastic stories. Unfortunately, because I'm a land-based researcher, looking at them kind of doing what they do, I suppose foraging uh, and everything else that goes along with that, and I'm just recording them from a distance. I don't have any fantastically uh, wonderful stories like that. But I have had a close shave where I was walk just on a on a walk, not particularly looking for seabirds I mean I always have my binoculars with me anyway um, and a cormorant uh, which is those big black birds that I mentioned previously was flying overhead and decided to defecate and it was very very close to shave <laughs> I saw it happen though so I was able to stop walking and it just landed next to me but I don't think I have any bad moments just I suppose it's just comical isn't it 
Would you still count that as lucky, even though you stopped it from happening? Yeah, I was just thinking, because that's supposed to be lucky, isn't it, when you get pooped on? I suppose, maybe I should have carried on walking. (laughs) (laughs) But then would it be lucky if you made it happen? Oh, the question. I'm just thinking about seagulls stealing my ice cream, and that my niece was like... Oh, yes. Did you remember when that seagull stole your ice cream? I have had one with gulls, yeah. Um, So just probably one of those generic ones that everybody has. Um, Just a gull swooping down while I was crossing the road with fish and chips. Um, No. (laughs) I didn't drop any, though, so it was was okay. But I suppose they're only doing what they need to do. (laughs) I mean, it's fair game when food's about, to be honest, for humans and for gulls. So I can't blame them. I mean, I have many secrets. Why can't that be one of them? Um, right, we're going way off on a tangent here. Melissa, have you ever worked with any other species or groups of birds? Or is it just seabirds? Are you like a, a one group of bird gal? Um, so I suppose professionally, I've only worked with seabirds. But outside of that, in anything else that I just take up because I want to, it's like a hobby, I suppose. Um, I've I've helped with webs counts. So those are wetland bird surveys um so I've not done them myself but I have helped out aid in those surveys and those are surveys that you can anyone can do if you're interested in sea or not just sorry not seabirds any birds are a bird watcher you can um it's part of the it's a British trust for ornithology you can just sign up and it's monthly winter wetland bird counts and you can ju- you just go out to a local wetland near you count the birds and submit that data to them so I've helped out with those. I've also, I also yearly, I don't know if you've heard of it, I've carried out also taken part in the big garden bird watch. And um, so that's the RSPB kind of wildlife citizen science project. So it's coordinated by RSPB. And all you have to do, anyone, members of the public, if you're interested, just spend an hour having a look in your garden and you just track what birds you get in your garden at that time. And so all you submit is the highest number of birds that you've seen within that hour, nice and easy. And that would just really help. It just helps build up a picture of the whole UK, really, uh, and increases our understanding of specific challenges that might be faced by wildlife. And I think on that note, actually, about the big garden birdwatch as well, is um, that you don't even have to have a garden, technically. You could go sit in the woodland or something nearby. You can even go to a local park. You really don't need to have your own garden. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. I meant to say that. <laughs> I wish I had a garden. <laughs> I think I've even heard of people doing next door's garden. So if you don't have your own garden, I've heard of people going up in there and say maybe they're, if they have a balcony, if you're lucky, or even just your upstairs window and have been <laughs> recording next doors. But I wouldn't uh, maybe advocate that. They might <laughs> not be happy that you've stolen it from them. <laughs> yeah, that's quite next next level involvement um but yeah or a really great way to get to know your neighbors just a little knock on the door like hey could we survey your yeah definitely ask beforehand (laughs) no thank you for highlighting some of those like projects and ways to get involved because I think that's that's one thing that we really advocate here on this podcast is not only learning but also engaging with uh, the wilderness that is around us and the wonderful world that we live in So we're getting on to our main topic now, seabirds. Are there like broad groups or broad types of seabirds or do we just have seabirds? Um, Yeah, so there's quite a few different groups, um, broad groups anyway. So I suppose just to start off, an easy one would be penguins. Um, Quite a lot of people might not think of penguins as seabirds, but they they are. So uh, 
that's that's one group um so for those of you that don't know what penguins are i'm quite sure that you will do but uh, they're flightless birds um and then we have orcs so these are some that i've already talked about including the common guillemots and the razorbills also includes the puffins and these are kind of small to medium-sized seabirds and they're kind of like barrel shapes they've got very short tails very small wings and short legs so I suppose maybe that's why I describe myself as a common guillemot because that kind of describes me um and these orcs um they fly quite low and they flap their wings quite quite manically um and they have poor maneuverability um but that that as soon as they enter that marine environment they're excellent swimmers and divers and they actually pursue their prey underwater which uh, if it's very clear water sometimes you can see that and that's quite amazing to see um another group is the boobies and the gannets so i've already mentioned the gannets um and these feed by diving from quite a height sometimes for for fish um, and the only species of the, that group that we have is the northern gannet, and those are the white birds that I mentioned with the black tips and the kind of yellowy heads. Um, and other types, actually, that aren't in the UK are kind of tropical birds are within that boobies and gannets group, and those include the frigate birds as well, like I said, and the, and the boobies. Um, and these breed in colonies on cliffs and islands, uh, and some of the tropical species actually even nest in the trees which uh, I couldn't think of what species that that, they, that did nest in trees, but I think that's quite amazing. <laughs> I think some of them even balance an egg between like branches and things. And, and another group is the cormorants and shags. So I've mentioned cormorants and the shags as well, the ones that aren't waterproof. So they're long-bodied and quite large tails and the broad wings and long necks. That's why I said they were quite a long bird. Um, and they've got short, thick legs. <laughs> um, and they also have bills with a kind of a hook on the end, and that just helps them grasp the fish um, while they're diving under the water. Um, another kind of group we've kind of mentioned is gulls, and in with the gulls we also have terns. So we've got the gulls, uh, kind of iconic birds that everybody kind of knows. I think everyone has the most contact with gulls out of all the seabirds, I suppose. Um, and so gulls are the small to large seabirds. Um, they come inland for quite a lot of the year, but some are some sea, some gulls are strictly marine birds. Um, so they're mostly grey and black and white when they're fully mature. Um, but then when they're when they're immature, they're kind of like lots of shades of brown, and you wouldn't you wouldn't think they're a gull actually if you if you've not got your eye in there. Um, and terns are quite like gulls, but they're small to medium birds. Uh, they're often smaller and slimmer, so they're quite dainty little birds compared to the gulls. Um, and these are the birds, seabirds that are often quite mig migratory. Um, and some of those are, so for example, the Arctic tern, common tern, and, and the sandwich tern as well. And I've I've got to see those out in the out in the field. Sometimes they can be very very hard to distinguish between them as if you've not got uh, quite close views of them. Uh, another group is the petrels in the shear waters, and these are seabirds that are actually related to albatrosses, um, and they <laughs> share kind of a pecu peculiar arrangement of nostrils, giving them kind of an alternative name. They're known, known as the tube noses, um, and these birds are strictly marine. Um, they come ashore to breed in burrows, uh, and they're only they only return to land under the cover of darkness. Um, but that's not true of all of the petrels and shearwaters. Um, 
one of petrels and shearwaters that you might have contact with um, quite often if you're looking for seabirds in the UK is the northern fulmar uh, and these actually nest on open ledges rather than burrows. Uh, and then we have, sorry, we have quite a few groups, <laughs> skewers. Um, so these are in the same group as the gulls and terns. And they're actually sometimes known as the pirates of the sky because they gain quite a lot of their food by stealing it from other seabirds, um, quite often in flight as well. So that can be quite a spectacle, although you do feel sorry for the bird that's been stolen from. <laughs> um, and we also have then sea ducks as well. Quite a lot of people think about ducks as not marine birds at all, but we do have some species of sea ducks, um, and they spend the majority of their non-breeding season in the marine environment. And we also have divers, and um, these have long, slender bodies. Um, and some examples of divers are the Great Northern Diver, Red-throated Diver, and the Black-throated Diver, and they're the only three species of diver that we have in the UK. And lastly, we have grebes. Um, some people might, might not think that those grebes go in the marine environment as well, but there, we do have some grebes that go in the marine environment. That was an incredible whistle-stop tour of seabirds. <laughs> and I am impressed, but also a little bit overwhelmed. Like, I just want to sit here and look at pictures. So you may have to send us some for our website. Yes. Yeah, I do have some um, pictures. <laughs> Oh, excellent. So whilst we're on the topic of birds and seabirds, how many seabird species do we actually have here in the UK? I think we, I'm sure that we have 25 species in the UK and they're from all of those, well not, not all of those different groups, but quite a lot of those different groups. So we have, we're quite lucky in the UK because Britain and Ireland actually have globally important breeding numbers of seabirds spread across those 25 species. I think there's about a total of 8 million birds that breed in Britain and Ireland so quite a quite a number and uh, you wouldn't think so I think quite a lot of I don't know before I got into seabirds I I didn't really know much about them and had no idea what what we had on our coastlines until you go and look and then you're blown away by how many there actually are because I think when you go to a seabird colony in particular you can see quite a lot of species at one time if you go say in the breeding season you can you're not just going to see one bird. You can see maybe four or five species in one day. So, yeah, we're very, very lucky in the UK to have that that breadth of species and number as well. Yeah, you just got me thinking about kind of the different birds that we've got. And there is no such thing as a seagull, is there? Like an actual seagull. No, that that's very correct. So I think, I think previously um, in the podcast, I just mentioned um when I spoke about gulls, or yeah, so it's the term gull rather than seagull. So gulls represent lots of different species, I suppose. So we have like um, herring gull and yeah, so so many black, lesser black back gull, greater black back gull, just off the top of my head. So there's lots of different species that make up that group that everyone kind of turns seagull. And in terms of all of these different groups, obviously, I know we know from what you said earlier that most of your work is looking at previously kind of nesting, but also foraging and how adults feed their chicks and how they use marine birds in general use marine space. So you've touched on it briefly that, for example, the gannets die from really great heights, but are there really different feeding strategies or are they all quite similar? Yeah, so there, I think there's about 
uh, yeah, three different types, mainly that people split zebras into these three different feeding strategies. So you've got surface feeders, um, so they collect items that are floating on the surface um, or swimming kind of at the surface. So for example, if, um, if fish are swimming quite uh, close to the surface or different prey items, all they would need to do is just dip their heads under the surface uh, and gulls do this and so do fulmar. Another strategy is called plunge diving. Um, so this is where birds can fall from quite impressive heights actually and dive into the water to obtain their food. That's swimming below the surface and not at the surface like the surface feeders. Uh, and so gannets uh, are ones that, that are known to do this and they're quite spectacular. So they'll be flying normally with the wings outstretched and they'll just suddenly tuck their wings in and really nosedive. Uh, so they look a bit like Concorde, I don't know, <laughs> hitting the water. <laughs> um, and another one is diving from the surface. So they'll just be sitting on the water surface and then just dive from that position on the water. So there's birds that dive from the surface um, and there's two different groups within this. There's birds that are wing propelled. So they use their wings under the water to help them move. So yeah, kind of swimming through the water with their wings. And the other ones are foot propelled. So they kind of use their feet for that movement under the water. Are there any birds that use both wings and feet? That's a very good question. I would say probably, yeah. But um, kind of within kind of how they're classified, they are split very much. But yeah, I don't see why not. Um, I, I kind of want to Google that now. I, I was just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, surely for efficiency. But, you know, it's evolution and how they've adapted and stuff. Um, so you also mentioned breeding season and how it's a great time for some people to see these birds. What is breeding season in the sense of time? Like, is it the same for all of the species or is it at different times of year you'll see different species of seabird? Um, so I would say that they are broadly similar. Um, they do have, they are, they have slight differences. But if you want to go and look for seabirds, I'd say that the best time is between April and June. Um, and if you're wanting to get into seabird watching, um, kind of how I started off, because it's, it's like, where do you go? Um, what I would kind of suggest to people is what I do, because um, I don't know anything else, I suppose, is I, I just have a look. I started by having a look on the RSPB website and just having a look at what locations they have close to me and what birds I can see at each of those locations. And they, they also split it out by kind of what month, you can, month by month or season by season, what you can see at these different uh, kind of RSPB sites. So that is a great place to start because you might have a seabird colony on your doorstep that you don't know about. If you just have a look on that RSPB site, you, it could just be there. <laughs> uh, so that's a great place to start. And okay, we've gone into all of our different seabirds and kind of how we define them, what they're doing. But why are seabirds like so important to our environment? What what do they what role do they play in the marine environment? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so seabirds are often used as indicators of the of kind of marine ecosystem health. So because seabirds respond quite quickly to environmental changes, you can and they're easily detected, kind of easy to identify and survey, and you can survey them across kind of large areas. So if if you see something happening with seabirds, it's quite often telling of the marine environment, which is very very useful because they're like I said, quite easy to monitor. So seabirds are also top predators in the marine food chain. And, and they're actually a, so they're a key component of the food web. So I suppose if you took them away, 
what would happen kind of in between. You're not getting that kind of level by level um, within the environment. Um, so quite a lot of people might not know this about seabirds, but they actually play a key role in cycling nutrients. So they travel hundreds of kilometers, they feed out in the ocean, and then they come back in the breeding season and they poo. Um, and this is often called within science guano. Um, and so these droppings at the colony, they can leach out into the ocean and they can fertilize nearby communities such as coral reefs. Um, and they, they also do this on la for land, uh, so terrestrial systems as well. So if they poo on land, then they're fertilizing the soil and they can enhance local plant growth. So that's an interesting one as well for seabirds. Yeah, I hadn't really realized that before, because I think in the tropics that guano is super important to some of those terrestrial communities, like you said. And I know that, is it one of the ways that you can identify like a seabird cliff is if it's stained white? Because I think Bass Rock yeah. in, near outside Edinburgh, again, the whole <laughs> island, you can actually see how white it is from Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah. So before the gannets will get there to Bass Rock, it'll be so brown and then they arrive and start pooing and then it just turns white yeah so you can obviously you can always see if you're so maybe going before or after the breed sorry after the breeding season you can see exactly what ledges they've been on because uh, yeah all the whites left over quite cool though <laughs> it's very cool something interesting as well uh, with seabirds that i think has been studied i've read about recently is so they're ingesting plastics more and more, uh, as we all know. Um, plastics are a large problem in the marine environment and seabirds actually ingest these plastics. And then I've seen some research looking at, so when they defecate, um, what does that mean for the say, plant environment? So they're ingesting these plastics. What toxic things are in those plastics? And then how is that going to influence the plant communities afterwards as well? That's a really interesting research question. Do you have any answers yet? Or have you read anything? That you I, I, if you want to have a look, um, a colleague of mine or a previous colleague of mine, Megan Grant, uh, has a recent paper on, on that. Thank you for the tip. <laughs> but whilst you've already got to the topic before we managed to ask you, what are some of the other pressures and threats that seabirds face? Um, so one of the ones that I'm predominantly looking at is marine renewables and how they might be influencing seabirds uh, and their distribution not just their distributions but so you have when you're introducing marine renewables into the environment the ones that I look at are tidal stream turbines and these are turbines that are fixed to the seabed and they have a rotor and that's driven by the currents and so you then when you introduce any rotor into environment you have collision risks so are those birds at risk the collision with this or, or are they able to kind of navigate around them uh, but that's something we don't know and are they also displaced from these environments so does the noise and all of that does that mean that they just stop using those environments or do these renewables kind of draw the seabirds in so these structures might act as coral reefs they might um, introduce they might be kind of places where um, fish can come and seek shelter um, or kind of yeah get avoid predators so you might have more and more fish um, which then would actually attract the seabirds to these potentially dangerous places for them um, but aside from marine renewables um, I suppose another one of those is uh, offshore marine renewables so uh, offshore wind turbines and um, 
and we're, we're starting to get more of a grasp on what those might mean for seabirds. Um, but then we also have, like I've mentioned, plastics uh, and oil, kind of like oil slicks. And I'll just have a think. Yeah, so there's actually quite a few more. So um, invasive species, obviously, um, they they, have, they can have quite an impact because they can predate nests. So they can eat the eggs, they can eat the chicks. And there's quite a lot of kind of mouse or rat eradication programs um, throughout seabird research, just trying to get those off islands. So these ground nesting birds mm-hmm. um, aren't, aren't at risk. And then we also have overfishing. So um, all the prey for the seabirds might uh, yeah, be decimated, really. And then with, within that as well, the fishing, you could have accidental bycatch. So you have these like long line uh, fishing with the hooks on it, um, quite often baited hooks. And these seabirds can, can accidentally get caught on these and unfortunately die. Um, and also climate change and human disturbance generally as well. So we're not just using the marine environment for uh, renewables, but we're also using it for aquaculture. So raising fish for us to eat and so we don't know as well that's that's something that's a growing research as well what impact does that have on on seabirds as well yeah i think you've highlighted uh, all of the main threats there and i think it's really important to just take a moment and take stock because i don't work with birds and i'm not that clued up on them but just that second when you were like invasive species like of course they you you have this idea in your mind that birds can just fly away but that's not the case if they're nesting and breeding on some of these Mm. grounds and that's the same thing like we are trying with marine renewables which is great in one sense but the threats that we're causing it are ubiquitous globally so it's really not nice but important I think to lay out all of the problems that the, in the way that you just have because I think it gives a much broader picture of like it's not we can't just save one area we can't just improve Bass Rock and then the entire population is going to be fine I mean that would help but there are so many problems that it is a, a much wider solution definitely I think. I think more and more people are starting to realize that we can't just think about overfishing and then we can't just think about pollution. You need to think about all of those together because seabirds move. So they're not just going to have that one impact. Um, so you, these are called kind of like cumulative impacts. So when you start thinking about all the different impacts and kind of adding them together and kind of what can you do to tackle it as a whole and um, to start reducing these, these risks? Because I suppose it's about reducing risk because like we're saying about renewables, it's a really good way to go um but it's just about doing it safely i'm no way saying that we shouldn't do renewables it's just doing it in a safe way and just about understanding how seabirds use those environments so we can really help reduce those risks and i think that's great to pick up on because i've picked up on two things you said there that just from a comment point of view that it's quite interesting in the uk because we don't necessarily view invasive species in the same way that a country like new zealand or australia would um and it's interesting i think how i mean we've had some bad terrestrial diseases in the past like my cow's disease and it was quite normal to see kind of these disinfectant footpads everywhere at the time but i know for a fact when i go to say the royal botanical gardens in edinburgh they have footpads to stop people introducing an invasive seed or anything into the gardens and the number of people you see step over them because people don't 
understand that kind of biosecurity because we just don't have mm. the same level of awareness of it in the UK. Um, but actually, what I was going to say was you've made a real good link there because we're talking about, obviously, the importance of data and good data to help us put marine renewables in the most appropriate place where we're going to have the least impact because at the end of the day that is what data and management is helping us do and you are working to refine those methods to collect that data so just you've made such a great point there and I had to like bring it all together in one sentence and I am getting very excited to just dive even deeper into Mel's work um so two different strands to your research Obviously, there's the quantification of seabird use that you've mentioned before of tidal environments, which is kind of what you're working on now. And then more previously, you were working on the provisioning of food to chicks, which I guess they both overlap a fair amount. Yeah, so they they do overlap to some extent, I suppose, because in my master's, I was looking at these two species, guillemots, common guillemots and razorbills. And so what were they feeding to their chicks? Um, What was how much were they feeding? How often were they feeding? What species were they feeding? How how large were the species they were feeding? Um, and then how did that change over time of day? Um, how did it change over the breeding season? And did it relate to the tides? So the tidal cycle, did it relate to that? So that's all information that we kind of need to know when thinking about the possible risks to seabirds. I mean, it would have also been great if I knew where they were feeding, um, really to tie that in, but that wasn't something I could collect. And the, the I actually did my um, master's um, data collection at Southstack, which is an RSPB reserve in Wales, in Anglesey. Um, and off the shore from this very, very large seabird colony, um, it's it's actually been proposed to be a tidal demonstration site, so for tidal stream uh, turbines. And so it be, it's great to understand what are the seabirds doing, what are they eating, to, to be able to know, hopefully, so if we do, say, a um, collection of fish in the area, we might have a better idea of where they actually might be foraging to help maybe influence where these renewables might be able to go in the future. So I suppose my, my research did kind of link to renewables then, not as much as I hoped because I couldn't collect where the data of where the birds were going. Um, and then my research now looking at refining methods of how to assess the seabirds Um so and now I should probably tell you a bit about what tidal stream environments are. What does it mean? Um, so they occur primarily in tidal passes found between land masses around shallow headlands. Uh, and these environments are actually highly energetic as the water is constricted between these land masses. Um, and the currents are actually accelerated. Uh, therefore, these environments are particularly suitable for energy extraction because we have that high water flow going through. Um, and in particular, like I mentioned, tidal stream turbine developments. And like I mentioned, these are um, turbines that are fixed to the seabed with a rotor. Um, but not all not all are fixed to the seabed, but those are the ones, the kind of the main ones that are being used at the moment. Um, and these are actually imp- also important sites for seabirds because um, these turbulent waters mean that um, prey is often confused and kind of disorientated, which means that seabirds can quite easily pick off the prey but also because they're more shallow 
um, the water is uplifted. And so with the uplift, uplift of the water, you also get the uplift of the prey. And this also makes it easier for seabirds. So as well as being really, really good environments for renewable energy, they're also targeted specifically by seabirds. So we automatically know that there is likely to be an interaction between the two. So then I, I'm kind of going on to uh, look at these, how we survey these seabirds. That sounds really, really interesting. I didn't realise that, like you said, the water increases in speed, which creates these obviously great spaces for renewable energy, but also these great feeding mm-hmm. grounds. It makes it a bit um, like a conveyor belt. So the, the prey's been yeah. passed, passed through and they can just pick it off. I mean, it's not that easy, but yeah, <laughs> easier. But in terms of like catching prey out in the open ocean, if there's an easier space, you just mm-hmm. would. Which is why gulls take fish and chips. <laughs> anyway. Um, so what are the different behaviours that you're seeing and monitoring? What are you looking for? Um, so because I'm trying, I'm actually looking at how we monitor seabirds and how those methods can be improved. I'm just doing these land-based surveys and kind of taking down everything that's happening. So I, monitor, I kind of record what species are in the area what they're doing so are they just passing through or are they diving from this like we've mentioned the different foraging strategies so diving from the air diving from the water and just plucking from the surface what kind of foraging strategy are they doing um and how many are in the area um yeah just to cut so then that builds up an idea of so how are they using the environments so then we can better place renewables um but i'm also looking at so I'm bringing in, in sorry, I'm bringing in other methods. So I'm use, also using drones, um, because we have these traditional survey methods and we have problems. So, as a land-based observer, your ability to detect a seabird decreases with distance. Um, so we need to understand how that might influence how many birds we are saying are using this environment. Um, so we need to better understand what that influence of distance has on our ability to tell developers how important the site is for seabirds and then we also have things like sea state so how rough the water is and how that might influence our ability to see the seabirds and count them and see what they're doing um, as well as weather conditions they also Im- impact an ability the ability of an observer to to do that job and um, so it's just kind of i'm bringing all this together hopefully so i'm also using two observers um, so to see if that two observers can help us understand kind of what's happening with that distance and how that's influencing how many birds we are seeing. Because if you use two observers, um, it's very <laughs> it's very hard to explain. Um, so hopefully using these two observers can make us understand how the distance is um, influencing how many birds we're seeing. Uh, and then I'm also bringing in other methods, so drones. So drones are starting to be used in wildlife monitoring more and more. But it's it's very, very important to understand how these new techniques relate to this long-standing data sets that we have. So we have these data sets and we've used land-based surveys for since the beginning, uh, since the beginning of seabird monitoring when we want to build something in the environment. But how does this new data set compare to that? And can we start using it? Is it is it a viable option? And does it give us similar things to the, the, the sorry traditional methods? Or 
can it give us something extra as well? And how can we maybe use the two together to understand really at a fine, fine scale how seabirds are using these environments? Yeah, I think you explained that really well because there's always going to be a little bit of human error mm. and I wouldn't have even taken into consideration the weather, which obviously impacts things. Um, so yeah, obvi- as as you've said, more eyes basically are better than... More, more sets of eyes are better than one and I think the use of technology makes sense to me. Have you um, found the use of drones and technology and increasing that side of it beneficial yet yeah so that's something that I'm, I'm trying to work on a manuscript at the moment actually I'm starting to see uh, real results which is very exciting so in terms of, of the two methods so using vantage points and using drones the drones seem to be able to give us a better understanding of the habitat use so where are they actually foraging because the vantage point surveys give us a very kind of graded way of um, the positional data I suppose so the positional data gained from vantage points is very sparse Um, you can only tell whether a bird's foraging within 100 meters rather than the very very accurate positional fixes that are given from drones so we can we can use drones maybe to answer the questions of um, is the overlap with where they're foraging likely to be where we want to put the renewables um whereas the species identification is a lot better from a land-based observer so the land-based observers um from the data that i'm looking at saw more species than the drone and um, land-based observers are better at IDing uh, the birds than the drone um i think that's maybe because you have i don't know i, I think it's the the video um, kind of clarity and how you're able to identify those birds possibly or it might be the fact that as a land-based observer you have like a better overview of the whole survey area whereas the drone is kind of a very very fixed point in space and um, so it's very very interesting that and the numbers as well that uh, I've seen between two so I was looking at two groups I was looking at um orcs and I was looking at um, terns which um, are those kind of dainty gull looking birds sorry gull but in dainty dainty form (laughs) Um, (laughs) so they're surface foraging birds and they're white and the orcs are diving birds and they are dark colours so the, the, the number of birds picked up by the vantage point and the drone was closer when you have those white surface uh, foraging birds the numbers that were seen were closer than uh, when we were comparing um, the diving birds, the, the dark birds, and um, those were more different than numbers. So that's really, really interesting. Mm. And what do, what do the birds actually think of your drone? Because, I mean, it's in their aerial space and I've seen birds, well, especially raptors, take a fancy to a drone in the sky. Um, so yeah, is, is that changing their behaviour at all? Is that something you have to mitigate against? It's definitely something you have to think about because we are, we want to see what they do naturally. So, and that's what we want to record. So we don't want to have any influence on what they're doing. So we make sure to fly very, very high. So before even going near the birds, um, so from where the pi- the drone pilot, which isn't me, <laughs> I'm not qualified. Um, so yeah, the drone pilot, it just goes straight up from the drone pilot and then over the survey area. So it's not going across then up if that makes sense so it's just going straight up and over so I think we flew between 60 and 70 meters I think it was maybe more like 70 meters above above the water 
um, and they didn't seem to have any they didn't seem to notice it at all uh, the drone and that's what we want because we want to see what they're doing naturally yeah absolutely so just to get another kind of overview of what field work looks like for you so you've got a drone pilot you've got yourself you've got a second observer how long you're out there for what does it feel like how many layers <laughs> do you just have to wear that. <laughs> describe your, your field work <laughs> um, I'm quite a cold person so I wear lots and lots of layers I'd rather have more and strip off um than have too little and um, so I usually wear about maybe five or six on the top and three on the bottom something like that um and that's just normal for me hat scarf gloves snood everything um but it was actually the fieldwork that I did was actually at Stramford, Stramford Lock in Ireland and the, well, the weather while we were there was actually rather warm for most of it so we were very very lucky um and in terms of what's the fieldwork like so because we were flying the drone with the the land-based surveys, we actually needed good weather conditions. So it was actually quite nice for us as land-based observers because we couldn't go out, we couldn't fly the drone in the rain. Um, and also the wind, the wind couldn't be too high. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of nicer conditions for, for a land-based observer. <laughs> um, yeah. And we're not out for, it depends on the weather windows. Um, as, and not normally with uh, land-based observers kind of just going out on your own you're you're less limited to weather conditions um but with the drone um we could only target those kind of weather windows um that were suitable so if it was a nice weather window all day we would really try and make the most of it we try and but then you're limited on the drone battery i suppose so we were just out as long as we possibly could and then go back quickly recharge everything and go back out again in the afternoon um but we were also trying to target specific tidal states so um that also kind of meant that we weren't out for long periods of, periods of time as well because we were trying to cover the tidal cycle um when doing the field work um, but when I was doing my master's field work <laughs> that was very different story so I wanted to hit different times of day um and then I was covering the tidal state naturally because I was just out there so much so I was out for three hours in the morning three hours in midday three hours in the evening every day for the breeding season which I absolutely loved you get very very tired but it's that it's that tiredness that you just it's accomplishment it's I've been out and I've I've accomplished something it's that great sort of tiredness <laughs> I love that and having joined you on those surveys Mel, uh, Melissa it was it was amazing it was it was just lovely and even when it was very windy, <laughs> hiding behind the rocks. Yes, which it was. Um, <laughs> but it'd be funny because it'd be a sunny, glorious day. Everyone's in shorts and t-shirts and I'm there in a full-on coat snood um, because you're just stood there for so long. You do get cold even though it's a glorious day. So everyone's like, why, why are you so wrapped up? I'm like, because I've been here for hours. <laughs> especially if you're a cold person as well I'm the same I've, I go out for a walk at the moment and still have about three coats yeah. on so I feel yeah absolutely. I mean that's pretty much what I wore to work yesterday when you were like I've got this many layers on top and this many on the bottom I was like yeah I, I think I actually had that on and I was indoors um but something <laughs> I actually wanted to ask was you've kind of mentioned how you're aiming for the different tide states because obviously it can affect the observer's data but does tide state I mean, I know season will probably change um, bird behavior because they may or may not actually be around. But does tide state or time of day or weather, do, do the birds just 
pack up their bags and say, I don't feel like it today. Because obviously, at the end of the day, they need to feed. Um, so, yeah, does that change their behavior? Or is it just your ability to monitor it? Um, there's usually peaks in seabed activity. So usually dawn and in the evening. So that's why for my master's research, I was trying to hit those time frames just to, to try and get as, mu- as much data as possible. Um, in terms of weather, I don't think so. Not that I've seen. Uh, and the only time of day as well, it's obviously night because seabirds are visual hunters. So they need that daylight. So, yeah, in the in the night, they won't they won't usually feed. Um, but yeah, I, I think they have to go out in all weathers like we do to, to monitor them. <laughs> do we have any nocturnal seabirds? We do, but I would have to Google it. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's something we can think about later. <laughs> <laughs> so you've painted a really nice warm cozy picture of your field work for us thank you for that what does a day in your normal life look like as a researcher and um, so that would depend very much on kind of where I'm at with a different piece of work I suppose because I could spend days reading the like the relevant literature to understand kind of what's been carried out previously and then how am I going to like build on that or improve that for example or just to understand the background of, of what seabirds are doing in these environments before I then go on and try and improve monitoring methods. Um, but then some days I can be looking at data uh, or drone pictures as well uh, that I've collected and trying to look for birds on the pictures and trying to ID those. Um, and then that can vary greatly to then out in the field all day. So I, I very much do different things on different days depending on where I'm at with my work, but I love that that variety it's it's great and that's what I think I love about about uh, research I adore that because yeah it's such a varied day I imagine as you've just said of everything you get up to depending on what you're doing um and you have summarized this really well several times throughout the podcast but I'm gonna ask you to put it all together just as a nice little summary as we're wrapping up towards the end um so how is your data actually going to be used do you think by industry or other groups that manage the marine environment and I know you said you're preparing a paper at the moment and I imagine kind of a lot of your work is still yet to come but what are the expected outcomes of your research in general? So my work in a nutshell aims to kind of understand the biases with traditional land-based methods um, for seabed monitoring and to to pinpoint those biases and trying to work on those so firstly the distance decay so our ability to detect seabirds decreases with distance how can we mitigate that how can we better understand how that influences abundances and then how does that then feed into collision risk modeling and other types of modeling for um, marine renewables yeah that accurate data is so important and I am a lover of a good methodology development project (laughs) um but yeah I mean Lexi do you have any more questions on Melissa's research or shall we dive in a little bit more about how people can get wild about seabirds you know me I am here for the engagement (laughs) factor of this podcast I love hearing about the nitty-gritty of people's research but it's about time we started talking about how people could get involved so Firstly, if you have one, Melissa, what's your coolest seabird fact? Oh, I actually, I have two, if that's okay. Okay, I'm into it. (laughs) Double double the answer, I'm here for it. The first one is to do with gannets. 
and how they dive. So that diving from a great height. So gannets can dive or usually dive from a height heights of about 30 meters and can hit the water at speeds of 60 miles per hour uh, when fishing. Um, so they've actually, in order to be able to do this, they have an extensive network of air sacs which help cushion them, like the impact to their muscles. So that it, it, like lets them, sorry, allows them to, to do this deep diving behavior from such a great height. I am stressed already <laughs> thinking about it. Like I'm happy they can do it and they survive. But, <laughs> <laughs> so my second one is actually that some seabirds have unique defense mechanisms to help protect themselves from predators. Um, and one of these in particular is that I wanted to tell you about was the northern fulmar. Um, and this is actually to defend themselves uh, and their nests from predators. Fulmars produce a stomach oil, uh, which is they eject when they're threatened. Um, and they use this when they're, when they're scared, when they're threatened. And the, the oil can actually solidify to mat wing feathers or to, rep- and to repulse uh, predators because it's extremely offensively smelling, apparently. I've not smelt it myself. Um, and the smell of the oil can't be removed with water and can persist on items of clothing for months or even years uh, afterwards. So I've heard this from many seabird researchers. They just have to throw their clothes away. <laughs> oh, no. So I'm going to say the first one... The first one was a cool fact, the second <laughs> one was a gross fact, but I'm into them both. But the cool bit about the, the second one is that although the oil is used as, as a defence mechanism, it's also used as an energy reserve that they can provide to their chicks um, if they're struggling to forage. Yeah, I totally agree with what Lexi said, that they were great seabird facts, but I, yeah, I think it's like a skunk, isn't it? You'll, you just never get that smell or stain out um, <laughs> ever. And I'll ask a more specific question. Melissa, do I need specialist equipment to go and interact with seabirds or can I just take my eyeballs? I would definitely say that you don't need to have any specialist equipment at all to watch seabirds, which I think makes it accessible to everybody. Um, I would recommend a trusty set of binoculars just because I take them everywhere with me. But saying that at quite a lot of seabird colonies, especially any RSPB site you go to, the paths that they have laid out, you can get so close without leaving any paths and doing it safely and without any kit. But I suppose one piece of kit, depending on where you live, that might be essential is a car. Um, mm. <laughs> and that was... That That's was, a good point. <laughs> yeah. But having said that, I've, even in lockdown, I've seen seabirds and I'm, I'm currently in Manchester um, and I've not travelled anywhere apart from like 15 minutes around my house. And I've been to um, canals and uh, just reservoirs as well. And I've seen cormorants. So so you, you really don't need to travel as far as you think. And on that topic, what would be the etiquette for seabird watching? As you've just said, if you're at an RSPB site, don't leave the paths. Mm-hmm. It's not actually necessary. But if you head down to the beach, how... Um, would I would suggest? say, like you said, avoid getting too close to birds because uh, you don't want to disturb them or any of the habitat that they rely upon. Um, also, sticking to roads, paths where they exist. Just avoid as much disturbance as you can because I suppose you're there to watch them and you want to see them doing their thing. So if you're disturbing them, they're going to be maybe alarm calling or flying away and that's not what you want as a as a seabird watcher anyway, is it? So, uh, And another big one, actually... I would just 
leave it as you found it. Don't leave any litter. Take all your litter home with you. Even take extra. If you see any extra, feel free to take that with you home and recycle it at home, I would say. Always a good tip. And everyone's got hand sanitizer now anyway. So pick it up, put it it in the bin, clean your hands, you'll be grand. (laughs) And you'll make the marine environment that bit happier if you could measure its happiness. (laughs) Um, Everyone has a phone, pretty much. Is there any ID guides that you can get on the phone that you use or do you take books with you or those cute little pamphlets that I adore where they're like three pieces of paper folded up and laminated. (laughs) They're fantastic. Um, So yeah, do do you have an ID guide that's your go-to? I do. I have a book and it's just one book that I use for the majority really. It's my go-to and lots of people told me it's their go-to and it's been recommended to me over and over. And this is the Collins Bird Guide. And it's called The Most Complete Bird Guide to the Birds of Britain and Europe. I have the second edition. I think that might be the most recent. And I believe it's only about £14, which I think is a bargain because I can't live without it. And I've even bought one for my mum. So. <laughs> I adore when we can get our family and our, to me, it's my mum especially, passionate about all of our things as well i got shampoo bars recently and mom's like can you send me one like yeah sure i'll introduce you to shampoo bars bars. so yeah i love the fact yeah i love the fact that your mom other than a shampoo bar has also potentially got the book (laughs) (laughs) but in in terms of apps that you were saying um there is a good bird id kind of app that i would recommend Mm. um i've never paid for an app in my life and I there's no need to I would say when you're thinking about getting into bird ID and all of that because there's so many free ones out there um it's called bird ID which I know isn't helpful but this app was created by Nord University so I think if you type in bird ID Nord University that would help you find it and it's it's got it's got kind of an ID section which is very very detailed for not just seabirds but all birds um, and it tells you identifying features. You can listen to the calls. You can see pictures. And it's got little arrows, like I said, to identifying features, which is great. But what I love about this app is that you can do training quizzes. So you can pick whether to just look at pictures or just sounds if you're if you're feeling <laughs> a challenge, or you can do both. So pictures and the and sounds together. And I'm I'm a visual, very very visual learner, so I find it great. I love that you just mentioned this app that has the bird calls because one of the most frustrating things is you hear a bird and you're like what is that or is that even a bird (laughs) um so that sounds like it would be super useful um and is there any other apps other than that one because that sounds great yeah actually it's one related to bird calls um and it's called BirdNet, and this is created by cornell lab of ornithology and this is maybe people for people that like their cool gadgets because you can record you can be out and about and you can record the bird and it'll try and ID it for you so I know it's very cool <laughs> <laughs> Lexi's face then I was just about to say we kind of like need a sound hound or yeah. what's it called the 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 apps where you can know, yeah, ask like, it like what Deezer. music's playing it for Deezer? birds but yeah. you've just told me yeah about I was one. gonna say is so, it Deezer? Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like that. So you just record it in real time and it'll try and ID it for you. It doesn't always get this. it right, but it has helped narrow down like what it might be for me before. And then I've gone back with that kind of ideas in my mind and then listened to, to songs myself um, to try and ID it. Um, but there's also talking about... Um, That's very cool. 
particularly uh, listening to bird sounds and trying to ID them, I've been started to watch uh, a couple of YouTube uh, videos, two channels that I, I've kind of subscribed to and that I found really, really useful. They're two new channels, actually, um, both by naturalists. Um, one of them's called Lucy Lapwing, and she does bird song lessons with Lucy Lapwing, it's called. And the second one is by naturalist and photographer Ben Porter, otherwise known as Bardsey Ben on Twitter. And his is called Birdsong ID. And both of those, I don't know, I think the way they describe birdsong is just really, really useful. It's not, not seabirds at the moment, it's mainly just garden birds, but that's, that's what, kind of what I'm trying to get into at the moment. Um, so yeah, those have been really, really good. Yeah, so I think... Having a look online, using technology and then actually getting out and about and getting your ear in is the best way. So on that, we've mentioned that you've seen seabirds in Manchester, which is amazing. And you've mentioned that you can see them on reservoirs and in canals and all sorts of different places. But where's your favourite place to go looking for seabirds? Um, I would definitely say my favourite place is Salstack, um, and that's mainly because I did my master's fieldwork there, but also because I don't know, I have fond memories, and it's just because of the sheer number of birds that the cliffs provide nests for, and it's really, really hard to describe it, but there's nothing like being immersed in that seabird colony with the noises and even the smells, which I'm sure some people might not appreciate, but to me, those smells bring back really happy memories of just being being there watching the birds. Um, I think, yeah, like I've said, there's there's common guillemots, razorbills, there's puffins, for those of you that really want to see puffins. I mean, when I was there, I showed somebody where a puffin was and she said, oh, you've just ticked something off my bucket list. And she gave me a hug and got all excited. So I just love it. Yeah, there's just so many species you can see there. And I think it's home to about 9,000 breeding uh, seabirds. Uh, in the breeding season yeah that number just like you know when you get that little body shiver I was like damn (laughs) that's a lot of (laughs) seabirds and I was actually going to say that is it loud because I can't really remember it's been a long time since I've been to Southstack but like on a clear day as well the kelp and the seals and there's porpoise there and I mean once I left Wales there was some killer whales that came by so yeah I (laughs) Southstack and I mean do we have extra special seabirds or extra special visitors that come to the UK? I know being where you've been based when you're actually in Scotland, Mel, that sometimes we do get some random seals and walrus visiting. But is there any extra special seabirds that come by? Yeah, some, there are quite a lot of weird and wonderful things that, that do visit the UK. But I suppose it just depends on who you, who you ask, because quite a lot of people would say, the extra special seabird for them would be the puffin just because they're so charismatic and the vibrant colors but I think if you ask me it'd have to be the little tern so um these are very dainty dainty birds um but the reason I say that is because it's the UK's rarest one of sorry one of the UK's rarest breeding seabirds and I think there's about um two fewer than 2,000 breeding pairs left in the UK I was actually lucky enough to see them on a family holiday when I was in Orkney um, and they nest on gravelly beaches in small colonies but I think that that increases their sensitivity to dis- disturbance because they're on the ground on beaches where humans go quite a lot um, and what I really really liked about this colony that I went to go and see although there were only five left I think when I went um, is that 
lots of children from the local community had drawn posters and put up like warning signs with like hand-drawn pictures of the little terns just to tell people that they're here they're nesting please be keep keep your distance don't go anywhere near them and I thought that was that was really lovely to see I adore that level of community love I think our coastal communities um, and their connection to the sea is just fabulous um, in the UK. And I love the idea of these small little posters from local kids reminding everyone to be respectful of the birds. It was very, very nice to see. I think the more educated people are, and I think just living, maybe if you're living that close to them, you just, they're really part of your home, really, because that's where you live. That's where you go out and walk and yeah, so it's, it's really, really nice to see that level of uh, yeah engagement with, with wildlife and wanting others to know that it's there and try and conserve it and look after it as well. I just can't, I'm overwhelmed by the cuteness of posters. The amount of times that we've had, that we've, we see stuff by like our young conservationists that are soon going to be taken over from all of us is just so wholesome and so ridiculously cute. And I love it so, so much. Um, so yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about before we sign off? Because we are definitely wrapping up now. I don't think so. I don't think I had anything else. <laughs> no, that's absolutely fine. Um, so, yeah, thanks for chatting to us today. And thank you, listeners, for listening. We hope you have an absolutely wild day. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> okay, bye. Thank you for listening today. As always, we have been Wild About Conservation and you have been awesome please do leave us a review. We would really appreciate it and we do read them all. To keep exploring with us, drop us an email or find us on our socials. All the links are in our description and the show notes. If you enjoy our show and want to support us, we are also on Patreon. Just £1 a month, 25p an episode, will cover our creation costs and anything above that we donate to charity. Thank you to those of you that are already helping us to keep creating. Our chosen charity for this season are the British Divers Marine Life Rescue, who are an organisation dedicated to the rescue and well-being of all marine animals in distress around the UK. Donations will go to training teams of volunteers and maintaining specialised equipment that is vital for their work. Don't forget to look out for our next episode next Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If we aren't there, do let us know. And remember, step outside and get wild about conservation. Bye! Bye. How do you get wild? Watching wildlife documentaries. Wildflower painting. Diving. Wild swimming. Ocean watching. Rock climbing. Bird watching. Listening to podcasts. Hill walks. Visiting a wildlife charity.